Good evening. Uh, my name is Sean Hecker, and I serve as chair of the City Bar's Mass Incarceration Task Force. On behalf of the task force and the City Bar's Criminal Justice Operations and Civil Rights Committees, I want to welcome you uh, all to uh, tonight's event. I think it promises to be a, a fascinating discussion about the role that prosecutors do play and the role that they can play to help solve uh, our country's mass incarceration or in country's over-incarceration crisis. I just want to briefly introduce our speakers and then I'll hand it off uh, to them. I know all of you came to hear them and I suspect most of you know a little bit about each of them. So apologies to those of you who are hearing things you know. Uh, but Emily Bazelon, among other many things, uh, it was actually kind of shocking to read the full description of the things that Emily does. Uh, she is the Truman Capote Fellow for Creative Writing and Law at Yale Law School, where she obtained her law degree in 2000. She's also a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine, a co-host of Slate Political Gabfest, which is a popular podcast, and she's now an incredibly accomplished uh, author of books. Uh, she wrote the national bestseller, Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. And last month, her most recent work, I have a copy here. There are copies for sale out there. And I'm told if you stick around and you ask nice, Emily will sign it for you. You don't even have to ask nice. You don't even have to ask nice. She'll just sign it. Um, uh, her new book is called Charge, The New Movement to Transform American Prosecution, Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration which was published by Random House to great acclaim. This is, this is an incredible book. Um, it, it is an incredibly well-written story, uh, two very different stories about two very different people, Nora and Kevin, and their experiences in the criminal justice system. And those experiences were very different, in large part because of the different prosecutors who were responsible for prosecuting those cases. And if the only thing the book did was to tell those stories uh, in an incredible narrative, that would be an amazing book, and I would tell you, you should all go read it, and you'd learn a lot. Uh, but in addition to so expertly telling those stories, Emily provides a compelling examination of the criminal justice system writ large and the myriad ways in which that system uh, often gets it wrong, and, and far too often to the detriment of poor and minority communities. And she doesn't just identify these system failures, but she then has a series of concrete things that progressive prosecutors can do to help reform that system. And I, I really do commend it to all of you, um, and you'll have a chance to buy it tonight. Now, it wasn't long ago that the concept of a very progressive, reform-minded local prosecutor would have been thought to be kind of a figment, figment of the imagination. That just wasn't how it worked. It wasn't how the politics worked, and it just wasn't the reality. Um, and it's increasingly uh, a reality. And it's not just true of recent elections of reform-minded DAs in Philadelphia, in Boston, in Dallas, but right here in New York, in the cool borough of Brooklyn, where all good trends start. And that leads me to the introduction of our other distinguished guest tonight, Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez. We're very pleased uh, that you joined us tonight. District Attorney Gonzalez, many of you know, grew up in Brooklyn, uh, in East New York and in Williamsburg, and after going off uh, to Cornell for college in 92, and then law school at the University of Michigan uh, thereafter, he came back to his home to Brooklyn, where he joined uh, the Kings County DA's office as an assistant district attorney, and he spent his career there, which really distinguishes him from many of the reform-minded progressive DAs who've sort of seized control of their local prosecutor offices. This is someone who has built his career and reputation uh, as a uh, tough but fair prosecutor in, in Brooklyn. He's prosecuted domestic violence cases, sex crimes cases. Uh, he's, he's led uh, trial zones. I, I'm not so familiar with how that's set up, but that's my understanding. And in uh, March of 2014, he was promoted to become counsel to the district attorney, where he guided the launch of the Conviction Review Unit, one of the first of its kind across the country under then District Attorney Kenneth Thompson. Later that year, he was appointed Chief Assistant District Attorney and took over as Acting District Attorney in 2016. In 2017, he won a six-way Democratic uh, primary with over 50% of the vote. He faced no Republican challenger. This is Brooklyn, after all. 
and he was sworn in in January of 2018 and has been serving uh, as our state's first Latino district attorney elected uh, in the state of New York since that time. This is one of the largest prosecuting agencies uh, in the country, so reform that happens in Brooklyn has an outsized impact. And, and let me just say, and I don't want to steal any of uh, his thunder, but in the relatively short time that he's been in that office, he has instituted a number of really major reforms. Among them uh, was committing his office to considering non-jail resolutions at all stages of cases. It's committing to offering pre-plea alternatives to incarceration for drug possession cases. And, and this is a big deal, particularly politically, which is no longer reflexively opposing uh, release on parole, which is a big deal. And any one of these things would be a big deal. Collectively, I'd, I'd argue it's a really big deal and it can mean real change. So we're ple pleased with the work that you've done. We're really pleased that both of you are here tonight. Uh, I'm gonna really hand it over and in the last, I think, 15 minutes, we're gonna open it up for questions. Just emphasis on questions. And uh, if I have to, I'll police that, but I'm hoping I don't have to. So join me in welcoming uh, Emily Bazelon and D.A. Gonzalez tonight. Um, thank you so much, Sean, for bringing us here and to the Bar Association. Um, thank you. I'm going to call you Eric because I always find it hard to say D.A. Gonzalez. I mean, no disrespect. Um, and thank you all so much for coming and sharing an evening with us. So um, Sean did a great job of setting the table. I'm going to do just a teeny bit more of that. Um, Eric, when you were running for election, there was this just beginning movement across the country to elect people as district attorney who were promising to reduce mass incarceration and increase fairness. I would argue that before 2016, really, the assumption about running for DA was that you couldn't lose by running as tough on crime as possible. Pretty much everybody got reelected, and nobody was really questioning those assumptions. And then a bunch of folks got elected um, just about a year before you did on the night of November 2016. Um, if you might have been distracted that evening, you might have missed this because there were other important national events going on. But um, in, say, a dozen cities around the country, including some really big cities like Chicago and Houston, people really ran on a platform of being accountable to local groups. Um, partly this came out of the Black Lives Matter movement. There are also a lot of fiscal conservatives who are distressed at the tremendous cost of our system. So there was a sort of bipartisan appeal, and it's in red as well as blue states. So you are distinctive in this group because you're a career prosecutor. And um, when you came into office, I think that you tried to kind of take the temperature of the lawyers who work for Brooklyn to, like, figure out what they were on board for and what was possible. And so I wonder if you might just start by telling us what your sense was of this office that you already knew well and how that informed the goals that you were setting. So first of all, let me say uh, good evening, and I'm really happy to be here. You know, I, I believe and. I started my journey on becoming the district attorney of Brooklyn um, but, you know, inadvertently. I wanted to become a prosecutor having grown up in East New York and in, in Brooklyn during the you know, 80s and 90s, during the, really the height of crack cocaine and other you know, terrible incidents. And, and I say this in the neighborhood that I grew up in, in the 75th precinct, there were 126 people murdered the year I was going to law school and thinking of applying to the Brooklyn DA's office, and that really shaped why I wanted to come. But I also understood, having grown up in that community, the sense of discord and the distrust that you know communities of color and low-income communities had with the police department and enforcement practices. That shaped my thinking about what my role was in the DA's office from the very beginning. Um, to your question, you know, being a career prosecutor um, and trying to transform your your office has different challenges than coming in as sort of a hostile takeover, but it also has certain advantages. Um, you know the personnel, you know sort of the internal policies, um, and I think, you know, like myself, I had been in the office at that point 19 years. You have some credibility um, with the defense bar, with judges, and, and with your colleagues. And... It, it also 
allowed me to really have a, a, a real understanding of what was happening, what the temperature was in Brooklyn in terms of their, you know, willingness to move forward on what we've now deemed Justice 2020 initiative, which is in Brooklyn we've had a, a history of, you know, being considered progressive um, versus, you know, other DA's offices in other parts of the country. Uh, but there was a resistance point um, in the office where people were saying, well, why would we do more when we're already doing so much more than other places? And that was the, uh, I think, the resistance point that became very clear to me as I, when I became the acting DA, that as I wanted to push, you know, for further reform in the office, there was some resistance saying, you know, well, we already do open file discovery. We already do certain things. Why do you want to do more than anyone else? And there was a concern that prosecutors share was, are we going to roll back it too much and that public safety would be jeopardized? So one thing that has struck me as a reporter as um, important and as an outsider, strange about New York is that there's one police department for the city, but there are five different district attorneys. So I wonder if one of the reasons for the pushback you were hearing was like, well, we already send fewer people to Rikers than the other boroughs. Um, and that there are these comparisons that get made that then can become sort of limiting, um, or whether you feel like that actually allows you to have greater influence. I mean, largely the real issue is sort of the preconceived notion that we operate in as prosecutors that we're doing our job when we're punishing people. Um, when people commit crime, that the role of the prosecutor is public safety, but also punishing the offenders and thereby um, keeping communities safe and deterring future crime. Uh, and that really became, I think, the pressure point in, the D in my DA's office that, you know, sort of the cultural shift that we're talking about is convincing prosecutors that, you know, we can do more by preventing crime than we're ever going to do by, you know, jailing people who commit crime and that our policies have to be those that hold people accountable but don't um, cause the kind of harm that law enforcement and prosecutors' offices have caused in, you know, in particular in communities of color and, and low-income neighborhoods. So... You are in a position that you have a bully pulpit, and you can say that, and you can direct your staff, but then there are all these line prosecutors who are actually making the decisions every day. How do you make the idea that we shouldn't be punishing people so much as thinking about preventing crime into, like, an operating principle? Do you start with a particular category of cases? Like, how do you go at that rather abstract goal? So a few things happened. In 2014, in 2013, Ken Thompson won the election. He defeated Charles Hines, who had been the prosecutor for 23 years at the time. And I think Ken was really among the first reform prosecutors elected in the United States. He started with his conviction review unit. We began to change the office policy on marijuana prosecutions. We began to roll back um, our use and starting to vacate old summons warrants, and that began to give pushback to the police department. I mean, at some point, you know, all of these things were um, opposed by the police department pretty aggressively, uh, marijuana um, reform, the warrant reform, and even, you know, conviction review. Um, that started to mobilize, I think, ADAs in the office who were um, interested in reform into two camps. I think those who thought the office was moving in the right way and those who had some concerns. Uh, but I think what, what really came out of that is when I took over, I didn't try to take away discretion from ADAs in doing their job. Like I didn't put a bunch of bright line rules into place. Um, I allowed them to continue to exercise their discretion um, to do their job, but what I did is I changed the defaults. Um, and I think you can, you know, really move the ball forward by changing the defaults by which your, your, you know, your organization, your agency operates by which. So, for example, in bail reform, um, 
when I started as a prosecutor, and I'm sure there's, I see there's a lot of prosecutor, former prosecutors in this room, you know, we were pretty much told to ask for bail on virtually every case, and if we didn't ask for bail, we'd better have reasons to justify why we weren't seeking bail. And if someone went out and did something because you failed to you know, ask for bail, um, your job could be in jeopardy. And I changed the default. I said, you know, for misdemeanors at least, I said the default is going to be you should be consenting to release with certain exceptions. And if you're going to ask for bail, I just want you to justify to me in writing why you're asking for bail. And changing that simple default of what the presumption should be, you know, we went in a year and a half, we went to a 58% reduction in cases where people were being held in on Rikers Island on, on new misdemeanor cases. And so we've been figuring out the default positions in the office at a, in a lot of categories. We can talk about that, but from arraignments to plea offers to now in, our, you know, in the new um, post-conviction Justice Bureau. So that 58% drop in misdemeanor pretrial detention at Rikers, um, that came about the policy change that I think that you're saying and correctly is connected to that is in the prosecutor's office. But technically judges set bail. So why does it matter so much what prosecutors ask for? You know, prosecutors have enormous power an enormous influence in the criminal justice system, including with our judges. Um, judges, you know, believe, you know, especially a judge who's doing an arraignment of a, on a case, has very limited information about who's before the court, the true nature of the charges, the true evidence in the case, and they take their cues from prosecutors. And um, what I've seen in Brooklyn is as my policy has become clear and the judges understand it. It's also changed the institution of, of our arraignment judges who expect that our DAs are going to be um, you know, reasonable in what they're doing in, in the court. And when they're not, um, they may get called out on it. A judge may ask them, well, why are you asking for bail? In this case, it seems inconsistent with your office policy. So it's also moved uh, what our judges are doing in the courthouse. Um, and I think that's huge. I think not only did we change our internal policies, but it also gave the judges sort of the additional um, ability to really question what was happening before them. And, you know, as a side note, um, I don't throw the judges under the bus when um, we're asked for bail and they decide not to set bail and the person commits a crime. You know, there's always the gotcha um, newspaper coverage. I don't play that. Um, when I ask for bail, you know, I will put our records on a reason, but I think the judges are not, you know, afraid that we're going to sort of uh, throw them up, you know, to the wolves uh, if they exercise their discretion. Right. So I think those headlines have in the past played such a huge role. And if, you, if a prosecutor doesn't ask for bail and someone gets out and then commits another crime, the prosecutor is politically potentially on the hook, like you're on the hook in the same way the judge would be. And so I wonder if that helps give the judges some cover, basically. Um, and then I wonder how that has changed. Um, we were talking earlier about a headline that was portraying you as like being ready to let out all these people from prison, kind of willy-nilly open the door, which wasn't what you were saying. But it was the kind of headline in the past that I think elected officials tend to find very alarming and do anything to stop. And this is I've noticed about you and some of the other DAs who've come into office with this different agenda, a new way of thinking about that kind of press coverage. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little. Well, I, I, I've been pretty clear that I believe that the power of the government to incarcerate someone is a dramatic use of governmental um, muscle, and that we've used that as a knee-jerk response to too much ordinary crime, um, crime that you know, incarcerating people may not actually keep us safer, but, you know, the studies show that even short stints in prison could make people more dangerous, um, provide less opportunity. You, you, you separate people from their loved ones, their family, their community. Obviously, we all understand the collateral consequences to schooling and education um, and other social services that uh, incarceration and a conviction could have, and that 
we also know that 95% of everyone who goes to jail or prison returns back to the neighborhood. And, you know, I believe that they don't come back any better for it. I don't just say that from almost 25 years as serving as a prosecutor, but from someone who lived in a neighborhood with a very high rate of people being incarcerated and seeing them come home um, and not seeing them coming home any better than when they left. In fact, I believe worse. So I have to stand by the thought that when we incarcerate someone, there has to be a very clear public policy reason why we're doing it, um, that we have to believe that safety, public safety and accountability demand that that person be incarcerated, and when not, that we use the office and the moral authority of of the the prosecutor to figure out other ways to get them services and to prevent them from committing future crime. And that is maybe a radical um, belief because I'm publicly stating it, but there are prosecutors throughout the city who are putting people in diversion, Uh, but I'm you know, quite out there and just kind of saying it out loud and saying we send too many people to jail and putting them in jail does not make us safer. I think another way in which you've been taking the lead is in making these arguments not just about people accused of marijuana possession, just kind of low-hanging fruit, sort of, um, or like turnstile jumping, but also people accused of crimes that are categorized as violent. So my book is a lot about someone charged with gun possession. With If you don't have a permit for a gun in New York, that can be a three-and-a-half-year mandatory minimum prison sentence. Um, and there are other crimes, like breaking and entering into a dwelling comes into this category, or like ripping off someone's iPhone or purse on the street. Do you think that is harder to talk about publicly? Um, is that the next step, given the numbers? Um, and how do you... What do you think about those categories of cases for your, your principles of prosecution? So the, that's where you, you'll see sort of the newspaper or someone take a shot at me because, you know, I publicly say there's a false dichotomy between, you know, nonviolent and violent crime and who commits that. You know, there's a, a large percentage of the people who are offenders or people who've been previously victimized and suffer trauma. Um, And I really believe that if we're going to get to public safety, uh, you know, diverting people who are not causing, you know, injury and harm in the community is not going to be the way to do it, but by dealing with the people who are most likely to cause harm and to to commit violence, we have to deal with those people as well. And, And because I stand by the fact that putting someone in jail for a year or two years is not going to keep us safer. It's just going to delay and cause them to come back out. Um, we have to figure out different approaches to how we deal with violent crime other than incarceration. And, and, and I say that, um, but I also believe uh, that we have not been meeting the needs of our community. And when I was campaigning for district attorney, and this was something that really um, shocked me, I didn't expect this. I went to virtually every neighborhood in Brooklyn. I went to every racial, ethnic, religious community, diversity of economic uh, you know, success in, in places, and I really always heard the same thing, whether the person was white, black, Hispanic, Asian, you know, Russian, didn't matter, that if I'm a victim of a crime, the DA's office really doesn't care much about me. They're just processing the case, and if I'm you know, accused of the crime, the DA's office really wants to make an example out of my community or me. Um, There was a really basic lack of um, satisfaction in our justice system. I think we've seen it play out in a lot of DA's offices. I know in my office it's very hard to get people to come in as witnesses and um, to proceed because we're not offering um, services to them that are meaningful. We're saying that the person committed this offense against you or your property, and we're going to jail them, but we're not dealing with their trauma. We're not dealing with their needs in significant ways. And so, you know, I've been pushing my office to move more toward the restorative justice approach with violent crime, which, you know, is getting to the underlying needs of victims. Most victims, you know, you know, and I say most, but a large percentage, and we can debate how large of a percentage, but they want, they want to feel safe. 
They want to make sure that the offender does not repeat their offense against them or someone else. Um, and they want to deal with whatever needs that the, the cause of the crime has you know, caused on them, whether it's been trauma or restitution. Um, and just serving one dish of jail has really led to great dissatisfaction in the people that we serve. So it's a matter in some ways of expanding options, keeping the focus on public safety, but expanding what that can mean. Um, I wonder if it's... And, and, and let me just also say, you know, I'm committed to public safety. You know, there's going to be people, and you're going to go onto my website, there are people every day that are going to prison. Um, but a lot of what we need to do is promote public trust in our justice system, and we have not done a good job in doing that um, in so many ways, and dealing with victims and listening to the needs of victims outside of just simply saying you're going to get justice because someone went to jail. That doesn't give someone um, a sense of justice in many cases. Unless the criminal justice system is designed to meet the needs of our witnesses and victims of crime, we're going to continue to fail them. Right. So it's actually a safety argument about trust as this essential building block for solving crimes, especially violent crimes. Um, as a country, we only solve about 60 percent of homicides nationwide. So you can see that there's this gap here. Um, I wonder, in thinking of alternative options, alternatives that serve victims and perhaps people accused of crimes, if um, you could talk a little bit about Common Justice, which is an unusual restorative justice program that you nurtured in Brooklyn. Um, Danielle Sarad, who has also a new good book out, um, is the head of this program, and it seems, I think, to be a good example of what you're talking about. Sure. So Common Justice is an excellent program. Uh, it really was meant to provide victims um, services that had largely not been uh, really focused on in the DA's office. You, you know, one of the you know fundamental issues in our justice system is that uh, communities of color, low-income neighborhoods, really feel that the justice system does not you know care about them and care about their needs, and so. Common Justice was created to provide services to victims of violent crime um, with the thought that um, we could bring offenders and victims together, um, have the offender take responsibility and accountability, true accountability for what they've done, not simply um, entering a guilty plea and, and and saying, well, I wasn't really guilty anyway, and I just did it because the DA offered me a plea deal. I was worried about getting convicted. But really owning up to what they did and trying to make amends with the victim for what they had done to the victim and try to uh, get the services that the accused and defendant needed to kind of prevent themselves from reoffending. Um, and, you know, we started very cautiously in Brooklyn with this program because it, it was controversial. Um, we were putting people who committed very violent crimes into this program. These were people who would otherwise be jail-bound. And, and over a couple of years, we've been watching those, you know, offenders. And I, you know, listen, we've dealt with people who have done, you know, significant criminal um, acts, you know, assaults and robberies and, um, you know, really other violent type of crime and an 85% uh, success rate with that cohort of people that we've put in the program over years. Now, we all know that you could not replicate that with our prison system, that, you know, 85% of the people who went through our common justice system have, have not reoffended. But we know that, you know, especially for young people where common justice really focused on, like 16 to 24, you know, the re-arrest re rate of that group is probably 50 to 70 percent, depending who you ask. Um, so one of the other challenges for anyone dealing with the criminal justice system is racial disparity. Uh, one of the things I notice all the time when I go to court, pretty much anywhere, is that most of the defendants I see are people of color, and it um, ha can feel kind of a, like a sense of despair can set in about those inequities, which have to do, obviously, with these deeper 
um, aspects of inequality in American society. Um, but sometimes reform can have kind of unintended consequences. And so I'm thinking now about um, marijuana prosecutions in Brooklyn in the initial phase in which you and Ken Thompson started declining most marijuana prosecutions. There were still some prosecutions, and I think this is still true, that you do pursue. And then it turned out, you found out, I think, from media report that this actually was translating into a much greater chance of continuing prosecution for a black or Hispanic defendant than a white or Asian one. That was unwelcome news. I wonder how you think about that and how you've responded to it. So that was actually something that was very difficult because in 14, in March of 14, we started to, we had a, a policy where we were going to decline and prosecute simple marijuana possession. Now, a lot of this was our response to stop and frisk. There was a number of, you know, the number of cases um, that we were seeing for marijuana in like 13, it was like upwards of 17,000 arrests for marijuana possession in Brooklyn. It was, you know, ridiculous. And, you know, 90% or higher were people of color. So we stopped prosecuting um, simple possession cases. We were still doing public smoking cases. And we had a bunch of carve-outs that we had sort of worked out with the police department that if someone was, you know, had a warrant, if they were on parole, if they had prior significant um, arrest records, that we would continue to move those cases through. Um, but I think also one of the big issues was if the person was smoking in a place that created a public nuisance, those cases would proceed as well. And because of that, uh, when we had all of those indicators, you know, prior warrants and being on parole probation, you know, it started meaning that we were declining more and more cases with, you know, white offenders and more and more African-Americans and Latinos were being put through the system on those same charges because of the, the, the criminal histories that they carried. And so last year... Um, I decided that I was going to do a pilot project before I announced it, and I just started to decline um, virtually all marijuana cases, including smoking in public cases. And I did not use those guidelines, like being on parole, uh, but I really looked at wh whether or not the person was creating a public safety risk by the way they were operating or using you know, the marijuana. And so if they were smoking and driving a vehicle at the same time, I would put those cases through. But sort of the, the smoking in public, in parks, and, and things like that, I just started to decline. And I went around Brooklyn making my case to, you know, um, some skeptical people. I, you know, this was before. I think it's moving in that direction now. Um, but, you know, it was intractable. The issue of race was intractable in marijuana possessions because of enforcement practices. And I think that it's the obligation of the prosecutor. And this is a new position, I think, for prosecutors. But I think it's the obligation of prosecutors to make sure that there's uh, racial equity in the way enforcement is done. And this was a clear example of something that in order to deal with the inequity, you had to um, take drastic action. Um, but we've done that now, and, and it's a 98% reduction in marijuana uh, prosecutions from my office. And it really did have the further impact of moving some of the other DA's offices as well as um, the police department to reassess um, their, you know, the way they were doing that enforcement. Um, and, you know, myself and some of the other uh, New York City DAs really pushed the police department to start doing, uh, you know, tickets versus summonses versus, uh, you know, live arrests. But I think it's had a tremendous impact on people of color in this city, but especially in Brooklyn. When I looked at my numbers, so it went from like 89, 90% to over 93% of people of color who were being arrested. Uh, and there are other areas of the law um, that are like that, where the enforcement is just very one-sided. Um, so you brought up parole, which is going to give me an excuse to ask you a question about this, because I've recently gotten sort of obsessed with it for this podcast I'm working on. Um, your office, you, I think, or it turned out, I think, you can tell me if I'm wrong, that your office was generally asking for the maximum supervision periods yes. for parole. So why was that happening? What did that mean? And what did you decide to do about it? 
You know, and I think also, again, we talked about the defaults, and the defaults are going to be a big part of how um, I'm approaching reform in the office. But when we did drug reform, I guess, in, you know, the mid-2000s, one of the things, when we got rid of Rockefeller drug laws, one of the things they did is that at ask for post-release supervision. They also increased the penalties if a person was a violent offender, right? So by one token, they... Um, they reduce penalties, um, possible penalties for you know possession and even drug sale, but in other, in the other token, they made it much more stringent. Uh, and the policy of the office since post-release supervision really came into play in the state was that we would ask for the max. That the policy was to ask for the max post-release supervision and the max probationary probationary periods. If it was a probation plea, and you could negotiate with defense counsel. Um, when appropriate, uh, a reduction. But what really happened was, and most of the defendants were never really considering post-release supervision in their plea bargaining. They weren't thinking about that. They were really just thinking about the jail number on the front end of the case. And so most cases just went for maximum periods of post-release supervision. Uh, you know, we have something like 36,000 people on supervision in New York State. Um, and our parole system was never designed to a handle that volume, uh, but more importantly than that, it was never designed to put uh, regular offenders in that kind of system. It was meant to make sure people would be returned home safely, re-entered safely. But what we've seen in you know in the last you know decade or so is that parole has become another trap to send people back to prison and not because they've created or done new crimes but because they they're not being successfully uh, supervised on the outside parole officers and probation officers are overworked their caseloads are too big and often it's easier to violate someone for technical violations than it is to supervise them um, and I, you know, it became a problem because the reason it's a problem, besides the obviously the unfairness of it, is that that system makes us less safe. People who are coming out need to be supported. To you know, they've been returned home. They need to be supported by uh, post-release supervision, you know, services. Uh, but instead, they're being pulled away from the community. They're losing jobs. They're being violated um, for short periods of time, and they're sort of being yo-yoed into the system. And so, I went up to a. I've been trying to visit a jail um, every month, and I've been going to jails. And I say, "You're the first DA who's come in 20 years to talk to us just about you getting ready to come home. Let's talk about are you ready." Um, to come home or, you know, have you made the cognitive behavioral changes? Here are the services my office can offer you. Um, And I was shocked by the number of people that were from Brooklyn that were there, not because they committed new crimes, but, um, you know, technical violations. They went to Rikers and then, you know, their life spiraled out of control and um, they found themselves, you know, reincarcerated. So I I think that, you know, we just really... um, need to limit um, the number of people we have on supervision, and that's why I supported the Less is More Act. Um, so I I'm not sure if I answered that question completely, but it, it's it's really a – talk about mass incarceration. You know, we really also have a, a tremendous problem in the state of mass supervision. Um, yeah. So just to pipe in there. So New York State actually um, has more people violated on ter- technical parole violations than almost any other state in the country. And so a technical violation is like uh, the average um, is to have like 20 different conditions, things like you're not allowed to go to a bar without your parole officer's approval. You have to be home every night at nine o'clock. There are unannounced home visits. All these things that like you and I do all the time turn into fodder for sending people back to um, prison, and 30% of the state's prison population are there for parole violations. So it is this big driver. Um, And I think also that when parole and probation were established, it seemed like they were benign. They were supposed to be about rehabilitating people as opposed to getting them back into trouble. So um, I'm not sure if you made clear how you changed um, the the old ask, the old default rule. So 
what we've done. And so I have a, po- a new bureau. It's a post-conviction justice bureau. It has three main components. It has our conviction review unit, which is, you know, a very, um, I think, a national standard of how you go back and you reinvestigate claims or wrongful conviction. It has that. We have a new parole and clemency unit and the sealing unit. As part of the parole and clemency unit, there's a few prongs to that. One is we'll work to provide you know, meaningful recommendations to the governor's office and other people who are doing the clemency work, um, really weigh in in meaningful ways and not just knee-jerk react, you know, no reactions to this, but really doing some work, meeting with victims and survivors of crime and, and sort of reassessing our position of whether or not this person is fit for clemency. Um, or, you know, if they're upcoming for parole, you know, we can, instead of in the past, we've just said no, right? So if you tried a case, you're supposed to write a parole letter, put it in the files. So when someone's eligible for parole 15, 20 years later, they get the letter from the DA who tried the case saying, we don't think they should be paroled. They should serve the maximum term. Um, or we've had, you know, college interns and law school interns write parole letters for us routinely over the summers um, on plea bargains. And I just you know, said in, in changing the default, if a person has pled guilty to a negotiated plea, uh, you know, that they should be eligible for parole uh, when they've completed, you know, the first part of the number. So from a three to nine in this indeterminate sentence, when they reach the third, you know, three years of sentence, it'll be a little less with good time. But when they re- reach that, they should be eligible to see a parole board um, and we should not be um demanding that they serve the maximum sentence that's imposed there, that they should it should be considered what they've done to improve their lives, whether or not they've been in trouble in jail or prison, uh, and just really negotiating in good faith the way the, you know, the plea bargain was meant to be. But by changing that simple default, we will, I think, have, you know, many, many fewer people in our state prisons uh, because we also give them something to um, really be mindful of that you know they can actually have the prosecutor help support them um, when they're getting ready to reenter if they do what they're supposed to do in prison, which is start to make the changes in their lives and deal with the reasons why they were um, sent up to prison in the first place. So you are the first district attorney to come out in favor of closing Rikers. Are we going to close Rikers? Where are we in that story? I think we are. I mean, there's about 7,500 people remaining in Rikers from 20,000 people, you know, 10 years ago. So we're moving in the right direction. I think we, you know, there's still a lot of discussion about uh, what our community jails will look like. I know there's, you know, in Brooklyn, we have Brooklyn House of Detention. So I think we have a space, but how that space, the size of the space, how it's going to look, how it's going to impact the community, is all discussions that have to be had. Uh, But I think that, you know, those discussions are one part of it. I think we also really need to have, you know, more uh, detailed discussions of what we want out of our, uh, our jails. And, you know, we need to have jails that really promote human dignity um, and places that are not meant to, especially to the extent that a lot of our jails in New York City are pretrial detention places, that we really need to have jails that the scope of which are completely designed differently. If we don't change sort of culturally how we deal with prisoners and how we deal with people who are being held in our jails, you know, we may create a bunch of smaller Rikers, Rikers Island. That's So we, we definitely need um, to deal with what our what our jails look like and the programming that we have in our jails. So I think that's a big issue. But I did. I came out in favor of supporting Rikers because I think uh, – um, the history of the island, the amount of trauma that place has caused, I don't think that can be um, fixed by renovations or changing it. I think we have to scrap that place and start over um, and really not only design a prison that treats people differently and just sort of the way it's designed physically, but the, also the design of how we deal with the, per, the persons who are inside are going to be a key component to doing that work in meaningful ways. And when we hear people sort of joke that people get raped and, you know, 
assaulted in prison um, on Rikers Island, and we don't think that that has a trauma that they then bring back to their own neighborhoods. Um, we're kidding ourselves. We really have to fundamentally make sure that what we create in these borough prisons is not just recreating Rikers Island. Um, I think that's a good place to break and take some questions from the audience. Um, do folks want to raise their hands? There is a mic. I guess you could come up to the mic if you don't mind. Thank you. I have a pretty loud voice to begin Okay, uh, good. It's it's a fair question. I I, I think now for me to take credit um, because there's so many other district attorneys now pushing the same position, but it made a tremendous difference in the fact that when the DAs collectively, you know, not all of us, but you know, Manhattan DA, Bronx DA, myself, saying that we would no longer prosecute those cases. Um, that PD no longer had the justification to make those arrests. And, you know, we, we started to decline those cases immediately. So people were not being processed through central booking and so, you know, trying to alleviate the, the trauma. You know, not only were those arrests not keeping us safe in terms of the type of arrests they were, they were for smoking marijuana um, and taking police officers off the streets to do the enforcement, but 40% of the people who had been arrested had never been, um, for marijuana had never committed another crime. Those are numbers that come from the police department. So this was really like a low-level offense that actually had a tremendous impact um, and I think there's, you know, we have to be careful for incentives um, for, you know, law enforcement to take action, you know, financial incentives and all. And there was, you know, a lot of talk about whether or not some of the stop and frisk also really, um, you know, provided the wrong incentives to our police department for making arrests. And so I think that we've very successfully really reduced the number of people that are um, being arrested. And I think the police department has now authorized the beat police officer to utilize discretion, not only discretion not to make an arrest, but to issue a summons, but really also just to issue a warning and, and not actually take, you know, still have an enforcement action, but not taking an arrest. And I think that is tremendous. I think, like I said, I don't want to take discretion away from prosecutors to do things that keep us safe. I'm not trying to take away the police department's ability to do enforcement, but not every time that a and the rest is made, and this is an important part, I think that separates me from some other DAs, I do not believe that every time the police make an arrest um, that the system requires me to prosecute the case. I think a good criminal justice system realizes that there are certain cases that need to be diverted completely out the system, and, and for me, marijuana clearly was one of those issues. Yep, we can hear you. You're good. Right. I think that's a, it's a, I'm going to repeat it. So have we worked with the police department in their gang database, like who's in it and who's not in it and whether or not, I guess, it should even exist, right? Okay. So we we rely, um, we have a crime strategies unit in the office, and part of my um, law enforcement, I, I think it's important as we're talking about reform-minded prosecutors, uh, one of the things I think that separated me when I was running for DA is that I also had a very um, specific plan on how I was going to fight crime, especially violent crime. And, I, you know, it was not just simply that I was um, 
a proponent of making a lot of criminal justice reforms, but I, I had a certain enforcement protocol in mind that we should be focusing in on violent drivers of crime. And we work with the police department. We have a crime strategies unit that we uh, um, duplicated um, from Manhattan District Attorney's Office that works with the police department to figure out who violent drivers of crime are. And often those people are in a gang database. But we do a little bit different in Brooklyn is we don't um, automatically accept that just because someone's on that list that they're a driver of crime. So we work on a program called Ceasefire that deals with people who have been identified as violent drivers of crime or gang members. We try to offer services. We try to convince them that we don't want them um, to engage in, in true violence, shootings, you know, homicides. Um, and we do a lot of outreach with like clergy and other people to go with those people. I think, so to your question about what we do is we don't accept everyone that the police department puts on the list as a gang member, we try to um, we, we push to see why they're on the list, and if there's not good reasons, we won't accept them on our side as a ceasefire candidate. I don't know if that answers your question, but there's a it's it, what we try to do is use our own discretion in who um, it's being told to us to have you know to be people who are engaging in violence. Um, I don't know if that's a hundred percent what you were asking, but that's really what we do. We don't. I have. We have not, you know, attempted to govern what the police department and how the police department is identifying people. What I'm doing is making sure that I'm not just accepting that willy nilly. That I'm actually making sure that I'm satisfied um, that those people should be included on that list when we take action against them. I'm going to say just two things about these lists because I'm really glad you raised them. So one is this question of accuracy. Who's on it? Maybe your friends who are on it shouldn't be on it. And then there's the question of should you have lists like this at all? Because they're essentially about predicting someone's future behavior based on things they've already done. And so then how do people really get a second chance if they're being targeted in this way, if law enforcement assumes things before they've even taken an action? So thank you for asking the question. And I would just say one last thing. I as it relates, because I think Emily makes a good point, is um, that does not prevent someone in my office um, from being considered for diversion. Um, yes. Okay, just talk loudly. That's a great question. Okay, so, did everyone hear that? It's a question about discovery laws and the new discovery rules that are coming out of New York's criminal justice reform bill. Sorry. I think that's an, you know, a question that I'm not going to be able to answer because we don't 100% know what's going to happen. In Brooklyn, I had an open file discovery um, policy. It gave me approximately six weeks to get the majority of the paperwork over to the defense. That was our policy, our agreement that we had with Legal Aid and Brooklyn Defender Services, and by uh, basically by imposition of court rules on the private bar. But the goal of, the, of our open file discovery policy was to get as much information as quickly to the defenders as possible. About two years ago, um, we started to provide discovery at the felony arraignment. So after the case was indicted, but before anyone could take a plea, we started to provide some discovery. And my reasons had nothing to do with you know case processing time. And there are other prosecutors who were against it. Um, they said it didn't speed up case processing. But my my belief was that it was fundamental fairness in the criminal justice system. And although we have to be concerned about issues of you know, witness intimidation and tampering, the overwhelming majority of cases can be handled with you know, open file discovery. So I was a big proponent of this legislation. I wrote an op-ed piece encouraging other prosecutors to get on board in our state legislature to do it. Now the question is, are we going to be able to fulfill the mandate of the law? Because it's been now it's basically 14 days after arrest. Um, so in order for a prosecutor to do that, um, we have to completely reimagine how we do this work. 
Um, we we don't have the materials. It's the police department. Um, we're gonna. They're going to really need to ramp up how they provide materials to the prosecutors. Um, you know, 14 days sounds like a lot of time, but it's really not. And when you talk about assistant district attorneys in my office who have 200-plus cases, um, it's a tremendous ask of them to get every case ready within 14 days. They have to certify it. Uh, there's some things about the, the bill that are a little, I think, uh, troubling. For example, where if you you make a plea offer, even if you're offering something very minor, you're from an ACD or a violation. The defense can still ask for the discovery to be completed. Um, is that going to be a disincentive for prosecutors to make those offers at that point? I think the things we don't know. But for me, the largest concern I have is um, providing this material because a number of our cases in Brooklyn um, will never move forward, right? They are going to be either uh, never presented to the grand jury or that the, the complaint is never going to be converted into the information, meaning it's a dead case. It's never moving forward. The law still requires us to turn over the discovery in those cases within 14 days. Um, failure to do so wouldn't have an impact on the case because the cases weren't moving forward but it's not meeting the spirit of the law, and it's having prosecutors not following what they're supposed to do. So um, that is going to be a real change for my office and for the police department that we're going to be asked to complete discovery on cases that we're not even going to proceed on. So I, I think there's a lot of concern about whether or not it's just doable, whether it could be done in 14 days. Quite frankly, um, I think that it may mean that maybe you know we may have to choose not to bring as many cases. And so there's a conversation about what that would look like in my office, um, how we would decide what cases merit um, not being charged so that we can actually make sure that we're f moving forward on the cases that matter. And so there's a lot of talk about doing a program called Reset, um, and doing diversion right out of the precinct. So before someone enters the criminal justice system, before they're arraigned, just dealing with with the issues and offering services um, before someone is actually brought into the criminal justice system. I, I think that's how I handle drug cases now in Brooklyn for a large part, and I think we're going to move forward in a lot of categories of misdemeanors saying we just want to offer services. We don't need you to come into the justice system to offer services, so let's do it from the precinct. So we have to figure out how we're going to partner, and I know we're working with CCI and others in figuring out how we divert cases and send maybe some things back into community-based organizations so that they can provide the services right in the community where the person lives. So I think there's some interesting opportunities as well, uh, but I think there's a tremendous amount of fear right now. Can we actually do what the new law requires? Um, one more question. Yes. Sure. Do you think you could maybe talk a little louder? Thank you. It's okay. It's a big question. Um, it, part of the philosophy here is that the criminal justice system and the footprint is larger than it needs to be and too large to actually do a good job in um, providing services, that we can send things you know, right in the community where the offense happens to deal with our neighbors, you know, our family members who uh, have committed offenses. So for us with drug treatment, for example, or for people who've been arrested now for 
any drug in Brooklyn. It's not just heroin. Um, like in Staten Island, they have an opioid court, or the Bronx have an opioid court. Anyone who gets arrested for any drug um, outside of marijuana, which we decline to prosecute, is eligible for Brooklyn Clear. And so what happens is they're arrested. Uh, there's a service provider that we utilize that will go to the precinct 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and peer counselors, you know, usually people who've had you know, their own addiction issues or substance abuse disorder issues will go to the precinct and say, the district attorney does not want to prosecute the case, but he's asking that you work with me to get you into services. Now, often it's going to be drug treatment, but sometimes there are different services people need. Not everyone who gets arrested for a drug needs to have drug treatment. And so they have seven days to get them into a a program, and my office will then monitor for substantial participation in the program. It doesn't require abstinence. It's They can relapse. Um, but if they're participating after a period of time, we'll just dismiss the case. It's a harm reduction model, um, but I really come... I've come to the conclusion, it was one of the things I think that separated me during the debates is, you know, I'm not the biggest proponent of, and sorry to any judges who might be in the room, but I'm not the biggest proponent of problem-solving courts uh, in the sense that people get arrested, put through the system, um, get criminalized, have to plead, often have to plead guilty to get services if there's a better way um, to provide services. And I think there are then um, often some of the problem-solving courts, that's a way. So that's how we're dealing with low-level possession charges now. Um, we've had several, it's just started last year, we've had about 700 people come through the system um, with about, I think, 70 or 80% um, opt-in rate because you can always choose not to go get services and then we'll, we'll prosecute the case in the traditional way, except that now what we're doing is we're not requiring anyone to plead guilty to access services. So you can actually come into the courthouse, we'll provide the services, you know, say these are the way you need to go for services, and if you do it, I'll just dismiss the case. Um, I think we're going to end there. You guys have been such a great audience. I have a deep belief that nobody should have to sit for more than an hour. Um, Thank you so much, Dia Gonzalez. (laughs) 